Hi, it's Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. As we gear up for award season, there's no better time to join us. By becoming a Vanity Fair subscriber, you'll gain exclusive access to our in-depth coverage of film, television, and the best of Hollywood. And that's just the beginning. Vanity Fair takes you inside the worlds of entertainment, culture, politics, and scandal, bringing you iconic images, era-defining stories, and much more. Get 15% off a year of digital access to Vanity Fair by visiting VanityFair.com and using promo code POD15 at checkout. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off a full year of insights and exclusive digital access. Subscribe now. Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair. It's such an honor to present this next award. And here are the nominees. And the Oscar goes to... And the Oscar goes to... And I can't deny the fact that you like me right now. You like me. I'm the king of the world. There's a mistake. Moonlight, you guys won Best Picture. I'm Katie Rich, the deputy editor of VanityFair.com, and I'm here with our chief critic, Richard Lawson. Hello. And joining us again for the first time in a while is our Hollywood writer and author of our most recent cover story on Janelle Monet, Johanna Desta. <laughs> Hello. Thank you so much for bumping that. <laughs> uh, uh, thank you for deigning to join us now that you're a, a cover story. I mean, Richard, we really had to, like, drag back into the show after the RuPaul story, so... Drag. We pre- <laughs> well, now Richard and I are in the same club. That's yeah, right. well, I'm just going to sit here and I'm just let you guys talk. This is a cover story only, <laughs> writers only yeah, space. So anyway, Richard, um, <laughs> what was it like for you? I just loved getting the tiara and the sash. That was just like the most exciting Isn't part, I thought. Isn't it so good? I love my new tiara. <laughs> do you have to hand it to each of the next ones or do you get your own tiara and sash to keep? Is that like Miss America? The real one you have to hand over, but you, they give mm-hmm. you a fake. Uh, okay, so uh, Johanna is joining us because she recently interviewed a uh, Cheryl Dunier, the director and writer of The Watermelon Woman, a uh, 1996 uh, kind of like low-key classic that has recently been um, resurfaced on the Criterion channel. So we'll talk about that. And then in the back half of the episode, uh, Joanna, gone but not forgotten, uh, interviewed Jeremy Strong about Succession, and um, she found him lovely, and it's going to be an exciting interview to listen to. Um, But before any of that, there's uh, news about the Emmys going on. Um, They announced last week, I think right after we recorded, that uh, the Emmys are going to happen. Jimmy Kimmel's going to host them. In his quote about it, I think he basically said, I don't know how we're going to do it or why or anything else, but I'm going to host them. To me, like, I don't know what else they could have done besides Jimmy Kimmel. Like, this would not be the year to have, like, an experimental host or something like that. Does this make you guys feel any differently about the Emmys and their potential, or is it all just such a mystery? I think it's all just still such a mystery. I mean, yeah, (laughs) I I agree with you in that having Jimmy Kimmel back, I feel like, is one way to sort of maintain old traditions and the old prestige of the Emmys, even though this is most likely going to be some kind of Zoom virtual event, so they want to hold on to whatever prestige they can. I don't know, but I, I did appreciate the blunt honesty of his statement. (laughs) <laughs> just being like, I don't know, I don't know if this is going to work, but we're going to try it anyway. Yeah, It's like the only honest thing I feel like I've seen from, you know, an awards person just addressing the weirdness of the entire situation. 
That's true. It's also funny because I just feel like it's a little bit like the Television Academy being like, oh, yeah, we can do what we want because TV is like the hot thing. We got so much to choose from. Like, you know, I, <laughs> I just think they're they're flexing a little bit. Well, well whereas the, you know, the, the Motion Picture Academy is like flailing, trying to figure out anything because their whole thing has been thrown into disarray. Yeah. I mean, it, like everyone is watching television. Most TV shows did not get interrupted. I don't I can't remember if there's anything that was going to be eligible, but had its production interrupted so that it couldn't be. Uh, Fargo probably was like yeah. a big one. Yeah, I guess that's a big one. I mean, but yeah, there's there's a ton out there. I mean, for me, and this is like such a, a subjective thing, like it feels like the enthusiasm for the awards is like different than it would be otherwise because the news has been so dominated. But once the nominations come out in July, I feel like that might change. And like, I do think we'll all be grateful to have an award show, even if it's going to be a weird one to look forward to in September. Yeah, there's going to be a lot of uh, philanthropic speak in every single acceptance speech, even more than usual. And I'm already looking forward to that. <laughs> Can't wait. <laughs> in like a schadenfreude way or like uh, at least they're doing something good for the world kind of way? A little bit of both. It's like, OK, uh, you're being wrestled into this bizarre position where you have to accept an award, but you have to be cognizant of everything that's been going on that has been affecting you, too. So you don't want to look like, you know, the gross, greedy, selfish celebrity. But yeah, yeah. it's going to be a long night. I feel like I should have watched the ESPYs. Like, the ESPYs is normally not at all in my uh, radar. But, like, as a live award show, like, I don't totally... I, I think the logistics are going to be hard. Because every time we've seen something, they're trying to do something big on live. Like, something goes wrong. And you imagine, like, having a live Zoom feed on every nominee in their house. And, like, are they going to, like, have a reaction and give a speech? I don't, like... I, f I feel like they're going to have to fiddle with that somehow. I mean, do you think there's a world in which they try to put celebrities in a socially distanced uh, space and still try to it. record something? I would love that. Like everyone sitting outside six feet apart with masks on. <laughs> Very like the professor's taking the class outside today, you know? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, what you said about the philanthropic thing, Johanna, and we might have talked about this on the show, like, I feel like if they attach it to some kind of cause, they'll get people to participate because there's this whole thing where, like, you don't want to look like you're promoting yourself too much or, like, just like, in it to get an award. But if you have it something where, like, it's raising money and that incentivizes people to show up in person somewhere, like, that could get you a pretty good show and give money to a good cause. Like, it could be a win-win if they, if they can organize that. Yeah, and I feel like the Creative Arts Emmys kind of teased this a little bit because they put out a statement about them, you know, proceeding with the award show. But they're also, I think, donating a million dollars to like the Actors COVID-19 Relief Fund or something like uh -huh. that. So I feel like there's going to be a lot of that. And yeah, you're right. I think that could be a great way to get people to show up, if anything, just to raise money. Yeah. I just want people to wear stuff. Like if everyone's just like at home <laughs> in their like responsible outfits, it's just be such a bummer. I know, uh, the gowns, the gowns. Yeah, think of the gowns. Um, the other Emmys thing, which is like kind of a logistical change, but a little bit interesting, I, I think in the same way as like having a set list of 10 Best Picture nominees, is that they've expanded the categories. Like depending on how many submissions there are, you can have a certain number of nominees. So if it's like fewer than 19, you'll have four. If it's 20 to 40, you'll have five. Um, and then the Best Comedy and Best Drama categories will always have eight. The Emmys have always played kind of fast and loose with category numbers. Like, it's not like the Oscars where it's always five or, um, you know, the slight scale and best picture. And it seems like a reasonable way to respond to how many things are eligible. But it does kind of make it funny, like, that the Emmys are like, we have so much to choose from. So maybe you're right, Richard, that they're trying to stick it to the Oscars. I don't know. For part of me is just like, we just have all this money. I just don't know where to spend it. It just feels like we have all of these shows. We just don't know what to do with them. So... Let's just kind of noodle around and figure something out. I mean, but they're not wrong to because there is so much. And I think that 
uh, you know, like the Academy did when when they instituted the you know the expanded Best Picture category, like. They want to include more things that people are watching, and they don't want to seem out of touch. And, you know, the problem therein is that it's still the same people, for the most part, voting for things. So they have to kind of get uh, the right shows in front of Emmy voters. And, you know, but I think they're just trying to get past the days when, you know, Monk won every year, Frasier won every year, or West Wing (laughs) won every year, or Veep won every year, you know, because it gets monotonous. And I think that that's something that they might look at in terms of declining viewership numbers and whatnot. So I guess the thinking might be if somehow like Rick and Morty gets nominated, <laughs> then people, <laughs> those fans will tune into the Emmys, I, I, which is not, I don't think. That How are dare not you thinking, suggest such a thing? Yeah. <laughs> you know, but I, I think, I don't know, I, I, I sometimes think that those efforts to expand the viewership don't really understand who watches award shows uh, and how mm-hmm. dedicated those viewers are. But I don't know. I, I would be curious to see what new shows will get dragged in by this wider net. I am curious about what viewership becomes for a Zoom Emmys. Like, we'll all watch it because that's what our brains are trained to do. But, like, is that enough of an appeal for you if you're at home and you have, like, your Zoom call with your friends or, like, Netflix or whatever? I mean, it's the same issue as award shows as usual, but, like, it does feel like there's less of the glitz appeal to make people tune in. Well, except you might be able to see the background of famous people's houses. <laughs> all my, the kind of fav- my yeah. favorite activity in the world. Yeah. They're all going to get smart like the royals who all pick like the most bland background in their entire houses. Like, like Meghan Markle did that video from Tyler Perry's house against like, just like a white wall and it looked slightly like a hostage video. But yeah, Trying to eliminate all analysis, but I will analyze that blank wall. I will analyze <laughs> the color on that wall. Well, Tyler Perry's house, you can like take a tour on like TMZ or something. So there's there's a lot to be learned. Okay, I have plans after this I, uh, I know. <laughs> Um, one other Oscar thing uh, that I was going to get into, just not really quite the Oscars, but since they moved the date back last week, um, various other award shows have followed suit. The Golden Globes are going to be in late February, basically the old date for the Oscars. And interestingly, like before the cutoff of eligibility for the Oscars this year, which is fascinating, um, the Critics' Choice Awards are going to be in early March. It's all relatively falling in line with the way things would have been had the Oscars stayed in place. Richard, I'm personally interested to see what the New York Film Critics Circle decides to do. And as far as I know, there hasn't been a decision made but that that feels like maybe the critics group that's gonna be like nope we're sticking with early january you guys can all deal with it do you, do you have any sense of how the critics might respond to this um i'm not allowed to talk about internal discussions within the new york film critics circle but uh i think i can probably safely say it has become recently a topic of debate yes um, sure you know i think the thing about all of these discussions with with like like the calendar is is how much other voting bodies and be they movies, TV, want to follow the the boss's marching orders. You know, in in the case of movies, the Oscars, there is a lot of practical reasoning behind following the Oscars path because that way you get access to talent because, you know, the distributor of the film they're in or whatever is putting money into a campaign time to the Oscars and certain movies are being released um, in time for the Oscars. And I think if a lot of voting bodies are like, no, we're going to hold fast, we're going to do you know, December, like always, like there's a potential you're going to miss out on a lot of things that the Oscars will get to consider. So I think it's a tricky topic for a lot of like reasons kind of all boiling down to a sense of integrity, which, you know, ultimately, hopefully the, the whatever wins speaks to that integrity the, the most glaringly. But yeah, I think there's a there is a, a, a certainly a an aversion from some groups. And I'm not speaking of anyone specifically, to not just look like they're you know, the Oscars say jump and then we say how high. Yeah. 
I mean, the thing I keep thinking about is something like the New York Film Critics Circle dinner, which usually happens in early January, like a couple days before the Golden Globes and right before Oscar nomination voting ends. Like it's all timed so that these people are really visible at the time when people are voting. But I mean, I don't know what's going to happen. I would not imagine that there's going to be an in-person New York Film Critics Circle dinner. Like you don't need to have the like the talent and the financial part of it. So like if there's going to be a year to take a stand, it might be this year because all the the usual rules are going to be thrown out. It'll really just come down to performance instead of campaigning in a way, in a small, small way. <sighs> they'll, find, they'll find a way. They'll find a way to make it about campaigning anyway. I mean, there's also, like, I think it's going to be confusing no matter what. Like, when we look back at the history books, like, maybe no one actually does this, but, like, what was a 2020 movie? What was a 2021 Oscars movie? Like, you know, if a, if a critics group votes in December, as usual, and then, like, there's a movie that comes out in January that wins Best Picture, and then they didn't get to consider it. Like, they're not going to give it their award the next year. It's, uh, there's not really a good solution, I don't think. No, I mean, that's the thing. is like, no matter what people figure out, it's always going to have a sort of caveat to it. There's always going to be a qualifying, but you know, this was the year that, you know, it's never just going to feel like a normal thing. So I think that people just have to accept that and deal with the thing on its terms, you know, um, as, as it can be dealt with because I, you know, no matter what something is going to get lost in the shuffle or overlooked or kind of screwed by its release date or, you know, it's just, it's, it's inevitable. Unfortunately, you know, this, this situation has sort of limitless, you know, arms that touch everything so we just have to kind of accept that this is why i wish the oscars had just stayed where they were like i know it's not an (laughs) ideal solution anyway but like i wanted that one constant thing and just to see kind of what happened as a result you don't like the idea of a nine-month award season (laughs) i mean i love award season like we're on an award season podcast so in some ways yes and in some ways no and we've talked about this before, like what Venice and Toronto and the the fall festivals decide to do is really going to determine a lot of how truly endless this award season feels. But Venice, I think, announced this week that they like are planning on having a red carpet and people, um, which is fascinating. I don't know what that's going to mean exactly. Yeah, I'm I'm so looking forward to what those pictures of that carpet will look like and like reporters holding out their microphones as far as they can away from them to the person <laughs> that they're interviewing. I don't know, yeah, it's going to be very strange. It's going to look so different, but I'm I'm completely curious about what it'll be. Yeah, as we get to be bystanders just watching it happen from a safe distance. We'd be like, yeah, bring on the weird award season. Yeah, but I'm also like, please don't spread the virus in the yeah, name everyone, of the please, festival, please. Yeah, everyone, please be safe. It's not worth it to see Tenet or whatever else. <laughs> well, Christopher um, Nolan would absolutely disagree with you, first of all. I actually want an up-down vote from you guys. Like, in your heart of hearts, do you think Tenet will open in July, yes or no? No. I mean, I know they pushed it to the end of July now, so it's off of its original mid-July date, right? Yeah, um, I'm not sure but, what difference they thought those two weeks were going to make. But isn't Mulan? Mulan is still holding firm at like July 23rd or something, right? 24th. Um, oh wow, I didn't. didn't I just feel Mulan like all of this is premature. There. Like, like New York. I'm I'm sure you've seen this, Johanna. There are like restaurants open for like outdoor dining, and it's like they're so packed already. Mm-hmm. It doesn't feel right. It doesn't. You know, it it just uh, it would be hard to get me back in a movie theater, and like I do that for a living also as a sort of passion and i just i don't know i just maybe the more casual people who don't really haven't really gotten as sort of intensely quarantine about this whole thing will feel differently but i i just i can't see with major cities still kind of gripped by this thing i can't see um any big movies coming out in july no 
Yeah, I also, I just don't think it's going to open in July either, just because of the responsibility, the idea of hurting people back into movie theaters for a movie when the pandemic is still ongoing. I just feel like that's too great a responsibility to bear, and they will eventually back down from that. Because, yeah, I mean, we have seen restaurants getting packed. Like, people are so eager to go back to life as normal. So I certainly think there could be crowds at movie theaters in July if the movie were to open as usual. But... I just don't think it's the responsible thing to do. And I think they'll back away from that, even though July is, you know, a sentimental release month for Christopher Nolan always. But I do love that (laughs) nothing can get between Christopher Nolan and the third weekend in July. Like he will he will not be swayed. Um, I mean, yeah, I'll be personally bummed if Tenet is like a year delayed by a year or whatever. Yeah. I also don't want to go to a theater. So maybe if no one if if I can't see it, no one can see it. Uh, so, Johanna, last week we were talking about what we wanted to talk about when you came on the show, and I had been poking around the Criterion Channel's um, selection, I think it's like Spotlight on Black Voices, or what they're calling it, um, of things they put past their paywall, and I had flagged the Watermelon Woman, and you said, oh, I'm interviewing the director of the Watermelon Woman, and so it was <laughs> true kismet. Um, you talked to Cheryl Dunier last week um, about her film, which I think in your headline you called it the enduring cool of a black lesbian classic, which is such a great yes. way to describe it. Um, so did you want to talk to her because it was being spotlighted on Criterion? Was that what kind of flagged it for you? Yeah, um, it was just one of the titles that jumped out at me. And I felt like every time I opened Twitter, there was some photo set from that film, like because it's such a stylish film, just from an aesthetic point of view, it is so great. And I, I just love her clothes in it. And I felt like I kept on seeing it. So I felt like there was a renewed conversation around it. And it is an underseen film. So I felt like these two things together, just like my own anecdotal experience of the film and the fact that Criterion was highlighting it was good enough reason to get her on the phone. And she was yeah. great. Yeah. And Richard, you had talked about it a couple of weeks ago when you were talking about your roundup of uh, queer films that aren't about coming out. So was it was it uh, did it come your way because of that same reason that Johan was talking about? It came my way just because I was like looking through what was on streaming, you know, in various LGBTQ sections. And I I had heard of the movie dimly, and I but I I'd never seen it, and so yeah, it just kind of was was a coincidence that I happened to sort of um, include it on that list, and and it became um, I mean it's always been very relevant, but it became newly relevant in terms of you know the discussion of Gone with the Wind that happened recently, because you know for all of its fictionalizing of a of a black actress from the 1930s, but it's just it like like I think cool is a, is a such a good word like it has this kind of effortless. Um, it's casual while also being about a lot of prickly topics and it has a real political, you know, acuity to it. And yet it feels like kind of a hangout movie. So it's a really well-balanced movie. Um, she's a fascinating figure, Dunya, because that movie was a big like festival breakout. Like it's enshrined in a lot of sort of like archives and it's part of a particular film canon. And yet I don't think she got near the accolades, like the enduring ones that her career deserved. Uh, yeah, Johanna, you want to tell us real quick, like what the Watermelon Woman is about as a as a plot thing for anyone who hasn't seen it. Yeah, sure. So it's kind of this meta piece of filmmaking. It's about a filmmaker slash video store employee named Cheryl, played by Cheryl, uh, who becomes enamored by this really beautiful black actress in this 1930s film, who's kind of plays a mammy archetype. Uh, but she's only listed in the credits as the Watermelon Woman. So Cheryl sets off to make a documentary about her, find out about her life, and along the way, as Richard said, um, uncovers a lot of other thorny, prickly topics. 
And then at the same time, there's like this like romance subplot where this woman who she meets at the video store and like she and her friend are kind of squabbling over it. So it's what Richard was saying about it, like partly being this really like thoughtful investigation about like the dynamics of how black women are portrayed on film is also like a hangout movie. Like, you know, they like they have <laughs> yeah. all these scenes in this like incredible loft that's like the most mid 90s thing you've ever seen. Could um, not believe that loft. <laughs> oh, I, I guess people lived in lofts like that in the mid 90s. Like it feels like it's taken out of like. Yeah, Friends episode or something. Mm-hmm. Um, it feels right for that character too. Who lives <laughs> it feels there. really I'm right like, for of that. Of course, you yeah. live in this home that looks like a museum art space. <laughs> what? Well, and it's Philadelphia, so the real estate wasn't quite as expensive <laughs> as New York. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think like, I don't know where you guys like when you like flip through the Criterion Channel because there's a lot of movies on there that for me are like, okay, this is homework, and I'm going to take this very seriously, and I'm going to mm-hmm. learn a lot. And the Waterwell and Women has a lot on its mind and a lot to learn about, but it's fun and it's silly and like there's this whole scene of a woman singing like terrible karaoke and I think I was like I didn't know that much about the movie before I watched it and I was so like delighted by what a like a blast of energy it was yeah it's I mean it's so light on its feet it's under 90 minutes and it's really really funny it's really fun I love all the characters I'm spending time with but at the same time she's exploring like black lesbian identity interracial dating like the labors and obstacles of documentary filmmaking and, and like historical representation of queer women. And it tackles all of that in uh, under 90 minutes, like I said. So <laughs> yeah. it just, it's a really capable film. Another cool thing about it that the casual vibe of the movie really artfully kind of hides is all the work that went behind creating this fake archival footage and photography mm-hmm. of this fictional actress. Because that was done by the photographer Zoe Leonard. And, you know, in the film, you see these old photos that Cheryl uncovers and, you know, there's film reels and stuff. And it looks like the real thing. And yet it was all staged in the mid 90s, you know, um, for the purposes of this movie. So there's a real like technical achievement baked into a movie that seems just so loose on its feet, like you said, Johanna, that like and um, and yet there is a lot of craft behind all of that ease. Yeah, and a movie that, like, has, like, that also is clearly not made for very much money. Like, a good bit of it, you know, Cheryl is shooting her documentary within the film on VHS, basically. And, like, you know, there's not a ton of scenes. Like, you can tell it was not a hugely expensive production. But the recreations of that historical stuff is immaculate. And I imagine that probably was really expensive. Yeah, like, going into that film for the first time, I was watching it wondering, like, wait, was this real? Was this a real I know! This footage is just so well done. And, yeah, I think it was made for, I want to say, $300,000, something like that, which is truly nothing for a film. And for it to become this landmark work is even more impressive. Yeah, and it looks great, too. Like, I know it was restored recently, um, but, you know, the the parts of the movie that are not her filming her documentary are, like, it must be shot on 35. Like, they they look great, and they make the clothes Mm. look even better because the clothes are really (laughs) amazing. Amazing. I know I would wear truly every single outfit from I actually mentioned it to Cheryl when I was speaking to her and she was talking about some of her favorite looks from it and one of the shirts that was her favorite was this like Sanford and Son shirt that she wears in the video store (laughs) and you can't really make them out but it's this ginormous blue shirt so I urge everyone to keep their eyes peeled for it. Yeah. When you spoke to Cheryl, Johanna, like, w- how does she think about the film now, you know, with the remove of, you know, a quarter century? Like, like how has she sort of processed its legacy, I guess? Uh, that's a really interesting question. I mean, one thing that really struck me is she's kind of been in constant conversation with the film. Uh, she was talking a lot about how she's traveled all over the world, you know, screening it, doing Q&As for it, like being interviewed about it frequently. Like, she's traveled the world three or four times, I think she said. So I think she's, you know, 
very uh, constantly humbled and flattered by the fact that it continues to be relevant. But yeah, she 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 loves talking about it. And um, as I said, she's had like lots of really interesting conversations with people from all over the place who who discover the film in their own way. And she was excited about the Criterion designation. Um, and nobody uh, told like her, she, right? She like found it out on Twitter. <laughs> Yeah, it, like it just happened and she started getting ticks and bleeps, as she said, from people who were watching it, <laughs> which I found very, very funny. Um, yeah, but she was like, yeah, nobody reached out, which I wish they had. But at the same time, she was incredibly grateful that it was on Criterion because that it was such an important institution for her as a young filmmaker. So she's she's happy that people are seeing it um, and that the paywall is down for them. Um, I love that you asked her about making a movie for Miramax after this uh, and working with Harvey Weinstein, which, as I was telling you before we recorded, like, it feels like there's an entire book to be written about that experience. Um, but she compared her experience with the director who made 54 and the director who made Billy's Hollywood Screen Kiss, where basically their movies were taken away from them completely. Um, and that feels like such a major element of, um, like, kind of mid-'90s independent cinema stories. Like, these filmmakers broke out and they kind of got shoved into the Miramax system, which elevated a lot of important voices and also just like completely tore up a lot of different movies. Um, And it kind of makes you imagine like if she'd broken out 20 years later, like maybe she would have made a Marvel movie, which could have been good or bad. Um, But it feels like such a tragedy (laughs) that it had to go the Miramax route. Yeah. I mean, it speaks to the weird cycles of, you know, the Hollywood machine for indie filmmakers. And yeah, what she said about Harvey was her, her feeling about the movie that she made, my baby's daddy is complete remove from it. You know, she says it wasn't my film. I was edited over. I was invisible as I was directing it, which for a director to say that is unbelievable and also speaks to the, you know, absurd power that Weinstein had over all the films that were part of, you know, the Miramax group. But yeah, it is kind of strange to think what her career would have been if The Watermelon Woman had come out now. And if she had made a Marvel movie, I would watch it, though. Oh, yeah. Not to sound naive in a way, but like, I think for a lot of people, you know, with the Criterion thing happening, like it it has just come out now, you know, like, I feel Mm. like a lot of people are seeing it for the first time. And I don't mean that just as casual film goers, but like, the industry maybe is like paying attention to her and her work, uh, you know, in a way that they haven't for a while. And, you know, she's been working steadily directing TV shows and stuff like that. She's she's didn't go away by any means. But you know, I'm excited to see that she has an episode of Lovecraft Country that she directed, um, which is, you know, HBO's next big hope uh, for a, a kind of sweeping epic show. Um, is, that, is that coming this summer? This soon, right? Uh, supposedly, yeah. I, I think, think so. so, yeah. Um, cool. So anyway, I just hope that, like, the resurgence of this film because of something like Criterion Channel um, and it's very, you know, timely um, subject matter will will do good things for her career because you watch this movie and you're like, I could just, you know, I just want to spend more time in her head in, in this voice because it's really, um, it's pleasant. You know, I mean, I think, I think back to that era of filmmaking, it's like clerks and all that stuff that's like mm-hmm. a little bit alienating because I don't really, I can't really... I just feel like we see so much of just like straight white guys hanging out. And this is a movie that's very much in that same vein of that era, but doing it from a different perspective, which feels so fresh and fun. Mm-hmm. And I will say Criterion also has a bunch of her shorts. So people should definitely check those out too. Cause it's kind of the same tone and some of the same topics, but it, yeah, it's just nice to spend more time in Cheryl's world and Criterion has allowed that. I love the comparison to Clerks because like, it feels like this glimpse into a whole world that's happening. And especially like it now feels like this like historical survey of what it was like to be like a black lesbian woman in Philadelphia in the mid 90s. Like, and then like the whole Hollywood history element of it, too. And the um, the people she interviews, like um, she interviews her real mom, who is great and like has kind of like a vibe of being a real mom. But then the woman who reveals herself to have been like a lover of the watermelon woman like I don't know who 
she is. She was incredible on screen. Like, and uh, another person who was like, I've never seen anyone like this in a movie before, I don't think. And I don't know if she was an actor or anything, but I loved that. Yeah, there's like a whole rich, compelling cast in that movie. Like the actress who plays her her best friend at the video store, God, who whose name I'm I'm completely forgetting at this moment. Tamara is the yeah. character's name. Yeah, yeah Tamara is the character's name. name. Yeah, so it's just it, it it presents this sort of alternative potential for movie making. Like here are all the actors you could spend time with if you you know hand the power over to a director like this. Like here are all the actors you could have met, and here are all the and here are all the actors you have met. Um, but you have to spend time in this world. Yeah. Oh, man. Speaking of actors you have met, I don't know if any of you, if either of you guys have listened to as much This American Life as I have, but uh, David Rakoff, <laughs> who was on This American Life for years and years and years and died um, like 10 years ago, maybe, uh, is plays the librarian, the Sunni librarian who they encounter, who's like, have you checked the reference section? Uh, and his voice is just so stuck in my brain. Um, I love that he showed up in that super briefly. Yeah. Um, yeah, it was a trip to see him for sure. I just looked up the actress who plays Tamara. It's, uh, her name is Valerie Walker. This was really the only feature length film she ever did, according to IMDb anyway. But I just found she has a story that you can listen to on The Moth oh, um, about, her, about her mother. So it's called Ruby wow. Bridges Influence by Valerie Walker. So Wow. I will happily listen to that. Yeah, same. Um, maybe to close it out, uh, Johanna, have you done any more diving on the Criterion Channel um, uh, past paywall stuff that you would recommend or um, anything else in the vein of The Watermelon Woman? Oh, that is a great question. I mean, Daughters of the Dust is a film that I love and watch again and again. So just seeing it on that list of the spotlight reminded me I was due for my yearly, monthly check-in with that movie. <laughs> um, I would also recommend uh, Losing Ground, which is uh, Kathleen Collins's sophomore feature. Um, she's a really great writer and director, and I just read her collection of short stories, Whatever Happened to Interracial Love. So I'm on a Kathleen Collins kick right now. Um, So those are the two on the top of my head. Speaking of Daughters of the Dust, I don't know if anyone has watched um, the new Padma Lakshmi Hulu show called Taste yeah. the Nation. She has a really good episode where she goes into all like the Gullah Geechee like, um, food culture um, in South Carolina. Oh, wow. Um, and about all of the um, present day things that they're facing, whether it's, you know, land predation from developers or the environmental. So, you know, Daughters of the Dust is set, you know, 100 something years ago, but in, within the same kind of coastal community um, in the American South. So um, if you watch Daughters of the Dust and then want to see what that scene is like 100 years later, um, you can watch that episode because it's really interesting. That's on Hulu? Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. The whole show is actually pretty good. I actually interviewed Padma for that. Um, for you had one Vanity Fair. What a great <laughs> run of interviews you've been having. I'm very jealous. <laughs> she, she was great. Lucky week for me. <laughs> Well, kicking off our section of the show that is all about our interviews, uh, once again, Joanna Robinson is back in with another interview she conducted for us with um, maybe uh, the star of probably my favorite show that's in the running at the Emmys this year, probably many of our favorite shows, um, Jeremy Strong of Succession, Kendall Roy himself. Joanna, how was our darling Kendall Roy? Oh, my God, our lovely Kendall Roy, um, our our favorite sad boy, Kendall Roy. If you've ever read an interview with Jeremy Strong, you know that he is one of the brainiest actors uh, to ever give an interview. He will drop references to to poets, to philosophers, to novelists, etc. So, you know, get ready for a lot of references that you either know or get to go look up and learn more about the world uh, listening to Jeremy Strong in quarantine, talking about his quarantine experiences, and then also wondering what it might be like 
to be in quarantine uh, with the Roy family. Can you imagine? <laughs> uh, honestly, Mr. probably really comfortable if they would just like leave you alone. Exactly. In, like, the, like the upstairs uh, bedroom. Yeah. Find yourself an empty wing. Settle in and yeah. uh, you will just be very comfortable. So here is here is Jeremy Strong, the lovely Kendall Roy. Yeah, no, I mean, it's it's interesting to me. My understanding is that were you meant to go into production next month on season three? No, we were actually suppo- we were meant to start shooting this past Monday. Wow. Uh, I was meant to be, you know, we were we, I was meant to be back in New York a few weeks ago and or maybe a month ago at this point and we would be shooting right now so it's it's you know it's very yeah it's it's very strange we've all been changed by this in some fundamental way so i'm very curious to see both what jesse and the writers decide to do in terms of season three and and if uh and to what degree maybe in an oblique way maybe not we will incorporate the sort of new world that we're all living in or or not um but i know as an actor and as a person uh i'm certainly you know cellularly a different person than i was when we finished the last season and i think we've all experienced a sort of collective trauma together um you know which is terrible and and in a way sort of you know, good for my character. Right. Uh, right. It's good for Kendall. Um, it's good for anything that is, like, you know, it's sort of like about compound extremes, like one catastrophe intensifies the other. Well, I, I read somewhere that Adam McKay, you know, because you had worked together on The Big Short, that he gave you your pick of, you know, brought you this script and said, who do you want to play? Is that is that true? It is, it is true because I, you know, I had gone like ten rounds for the Big Short, um, for a lot of different roles, and Adam basically said, you know, we had and we had a great experience making that movie, and Adam said, you know, I'm not going to make you do that this time, and so, you know, read it and see what you respond to, and and we'll and that'll be that, and of course it didn't happen that way, and initially I was drawn to. I probably shouldn't say this, but I, I was drawn to Roman's character because I just thought, you know, A, because I've always thought of myself as a character actor. And so any character where you have to travel far from yourself, uh, sort of behaviorally, characterologically, it felt like a, he felt like a real kind of bon vivant asshole. And... And that that's that <laughs> seemed fun to me and something different. And in a way, Kendall felt close to the bone in a way that is, um, you know, frightening. At the end of the day, you know, when Jesse said, I think he's right for this character, it sort of took me a little while and multiple times rereading it. To, I almost had a blind spot because the character, in a way, was so close. You know, I, I'm... I'm I, there's a lot of me that is not like Kendall, but in terms of the, I would say the kind of DNA and the engine and, and, and that kind of primal needs of the character, they're quite close to the bone for me. You know, I, I remember reading something in like Kafka's letters to Milena. He said something about, he was talking about writing, but he said that the, that the, the, the most difficult high wire to walk on is the one that's laying flat on the ground. And so that that kind of felt like the 
the summons for me. Can I approach the work in a, in a fundamentally different way, which was sort of undisguised. You know, I'd always thought of acting as sort of disguises and trying to be a chameleon and trying to, you know, erase myself and travel somewhere else. And this felt different. This felt like, can I completely inhabit myself and come from the base of my spine in every moment and go through the experience that the character's having? So anyway, that's a, that's a long-winded way of saying that I think there was something about Kendall that felt frightening to me because it was going to require a different way of working. Kendall feels as real to me as Jeremy does, which is maybe a, which is maybe a crazy thing to say, but the great thing about long-form television is it's almost like a play. I mean, a play, you get to kind of step into the river and you take the journey of the character every night. And with a, with a series like this, in a way, you extend that three hours that you'd be on stage for the seven months that you're shooting, um, which is incredibly arduous. I had read somewhere that, you know, part of your process for season two, you know, to enhance Kendall's isolation from the family was that you isolated yourself to a certain degree from the rest of the cast. How extreme was that isolation for you? And, and what kind of toll does that uh, approach take on you? One of the things I did before the season was to reread Crime and Punishment. And, you know, because that's the thing about Raskolnikov is that he's he has this terrible secret that is that is eating him alive and that he can't share with anyone. And there's a phrase in it where Dostoevsky writes about his monstrous pain. And that monstrous pain is simply because he's estranged from people. He can't tell anyone ever and his guilt uh, creates this sort of, um, you know, unbridgeable chasm between him and other people. And so it felt like if that were, if I were to really make that true and live in that place, then even when I do try and connect with the other actors or try and sort of hang out and be casual, which is, you know, I, I, I wouldn't say that I'm a method actor. I would just say that I, uh, have a need to maintain focus really and 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 the sort of energetics and the emotional valence of of whatever you have to do that day and so so I, I you know I didn't actively avoid people but I did feel I tried to create the feeling of that aloneness I guess you know it's a very that, that that was the thing it's a very he's very very alone there's this John Berryman poem that is again is sort of one of the one of the sort of touch points for me uh, of this whole show that Jesse wrote into the final episode of season one, where it's from John Berryman's dream songs, and it says something like I'm going to misquote it, but it says something like there sat down a thing once on Henry's heart so heavy that after. A thousand years weeping and sleepless in all them time Henry could not make good and so I guess it felt like that thing that was sitting on Henry's heart so heavily that after a thousand years he couldn't make good it felt like last season had to be about making that weight palpable and so heavy that I would be nearly crushed by it as if the whole season really hinged on this 
reversal happening in the last minute and a half, as if he as if he's lying, you know, playing dead, and then pounces. Um, so the playing dead part was was really the bulk of the season, and and I actually don't even think it's playing dead. I I don't think that I sort of you know I as far as I'm concerned this was not something I was planning all along, um, and uh, it surprises me as much as it does maybe the audience. And so towards the end of the season, I didn't feel uh, like I had to be in the ninth circle of hell anymore. And that was a real relief, (laughs) you know. Yeah. I imagine. And, and, you know, and going into, you know, because now I, I, you know, I do feel going into this next season, uh, it seemed that the, you know, the new kind of, if if this second season was about sort of carrying the, the weight of that pain, this next season seems to be about, you know, finding my power and this, the feeling of like, there, you know, there's a, there's a, this, this Norwegian writer that everybody talks about. I don't know if you've read Knausgaard at all, but he said, he said, he said this great thing at the end of the final book of my struggle. He said, I have taken great risks by not pretending. And I, I felt so inspired by that in this sort of digital age that's full of fictions and artifice and noise in a sense. I felt very inspired by this idea of even within something that is fictional and within something that is arguably artificial um, to, to not pretend. One of my favorite things that I um, found out about you and when I was digging through your, scrounging around your past, um, <laughs> is that um, you were Daniel Day-Lewis's assistant on uh, The Ballad of Jack and Rose. Uh, is that right? Yeah. Um, what, yeah. I mean, uh, you know, uh, what, if anything, can you share from that? And and in what ways are you, as, as an actor coming up, absorbing things from someone like Daniel Day-Lewis uh, yeah. working for him in that capacity? Well, listen, I mean, I'm not alone in, in sort of feeling the way I do about, about him as an actor. He was, he was, and is, uh, one of my heroes and, and is a great, you know, I mean, he, he would kill me if I say anything nice about him, but he, you know, listen, he, he, he is as committed an actor as there's ever been. And so certainly I feel influenced as I think a lot of actors do by his unsparing commitment and by his audacity and and freedom both his freedom as an actor and his freedom in a way to sort of you know follow his own inner directives and not give a fuck about what people might think or what uh might be best for career so i got to work as his assistant i think i was 22 uh, and, you know, I'd seen my left foot when I was maybe 12 or something. And I think I tried to, like, be Christy Brown on my floor. You know, I think I, I, I think that was it for me, really, if there was one thing that made me want to be an actor in a serious way. You know, that and Five Easy Pieces and Kramer versus Kramer and seeing Ian Holm do King Lear at the National. Um, but Daniel... 
you know, I got to, I got to I got to sort of watch and observe his process and learn a lot from that. Learn a lot from that on a technical level and on a on a creative level, and you know, and then I got to do Lincoln with him, and I sort of played his assistant, and that was that was um, a kind of uh, you know synchronistic synchronistic happening. Um, you know, I would say I've never sort of shared this before, but but I will because you asked. Um, the thing that something he said to me once that I took to heart and that I that I think about the way one sort of moves rosary beads through their fingers uh, is that is that sort of ultimately it's about the willingness to be a fool. And so I always feel doing this, whether it's Succession or, you know, the Chicago 7 or the Guy Ritchie movie, if I'm not out on a limb enough where I feel like I might be making a giant fool of myself, uh, and, and that feeling is quite keen, then, then it feels like I'm not sort of wagering enough. And that's, that's certainly something that I learned from him. But, you know, yeah, there's a, there's a lot to be learned from him and from his work and from his repudiation of kind of a lot about our business. I'm so glad you um, you brought up Lincoln because my co-host Kitty Rich would have me fired if I didn't have you talk about Lincoln. She's a real Lincoln head. So um, <laughs> I'm glad I'm glad you got there organically. <laughs> I didn't have to force it. You know, it was a dream for me. I think I would I think I just turned 30 and I've been doing off-Broadway theater in New York for years and years and you know you're kind of in a wilderness you don't really know if you're ever going to get to work at the level that you hope you will and so to sort of be in a room with where with Spielberg and Daniel you know it felt um miraculous at the at, you know at, at, the, at the time and and I remember standing on the set you know, Rick Carter reconstructed the White House down to the wallpaper, and we were in a soundstage outside of Richmond, Virginia. And I was with David Strathairn, and we were standing on what was the second floor hallway, and a, we saw a stovepipe hat sort of peeking its way up the stairs on the other end of the hallway. And and it was the first time we'd seen Daniel in, in character, you know, who we, of course, related to in the circumstances, you know, when I, I sort of called him Mr. President, and and I think that helped a collective sense of belief in 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 what we were all doing. But but David sort of turned to me as we saw the, the sort of bent over gate, and you know we'd all we'd all read uh, tomes about Lincoln at that point, and so seeing him embodied and in the flesh, David turned to me and he said, "Spirits walk," and so I remember that moment. You know, I didn't have a lot to do as an actor, although of course, you know, it doesn't really matter if you are carrying the whole piece, as I feel sometimes that I'm doing on succession, or if you're just sitting in the room, as I was, as, as Nicolay in, in Lincoln, you're still all cylinders firing and, and you still have to construct and create a fully lived in person and do all of that work you know it doesn't matter if it's on screen or not and then what is it like for you you know to to be a part of you know this show which has gotten so big and to find out that steven spielberg is a succession fan himself does that that feel like a full circle moment for you or yeah it's you know it's wild yeah it is it's wild um 
you know, if you had told my 12-year-old or 25-year-old self any of these things, um, you know, I, I, uh, uh, it's very, very meaningful and, you know, sort of sometimes hard for me to believe. Um, but, but I think what's interesting is that at a certain point as an actor, you're sort of in the ring with yourself and what anyone else thinks has to become irrelevant. At the very end of season, of season two in the press conference, I was having a really hard day that day. You know, it was one of those scenes that I thought was just going to sort of catch fire. And there were a number of factors, technical factors that day that really threw me off. And we were on like take nine or 10 of this press conference. And I was still nowhere near, you know, where it needed to be. And part of it involved sort of having a working microphone that I could speak into. It was strange to sort of contrive that I was speaking into a microphone and and not have the room hear me. And so that 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 that, that threw me off. But but there was not a a sort of a, what's it called a caesura like a break in music. There wasn't a break in the writing of that speech, and there was just one take where I said the word but and then let it hang there. And that was just a sort of impulse. But in that moment, the whole thing kind of turned on its axis and turned in me. I hadn't been having the experience of the reversal. And that was just one of those discoveries that I guess, and at the end of that take, I think I tore up the, the letter, which wasn't, script, which wasn't scripted, but also because it sort of had, had, had found a, a you know, a, a kind of real place in me and, and taken root. Um, it allowed other things to happen. And so at the, I guess m my point being that at the end of that day, I felt a sort of reward and a sense of having made a creative discovery, which feels, I think, when those things happen, and they don't always happen, and they when they do, they sort of come unbidden. But when they happen, um, those things feel sort of more real than any kind of adulation or or even kudos from people you 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 know admire or worship i remember doing a scene with sarah early on in the season uh where we're in my father's office and i have his pills and it was a scene you know i'd been up on the ledge of this building sort of standing on the precipice in a in a, in a suicidal i think place um and it was the first sort of moment of human contact that I that I have. And there was just a take where I sort of held the pill bottle like up to my chest. And I sort of felt like a little boy again, um, you know, like holding a blank, holding like a, my blankie. And that sort of did something to me. You know, there's a scene with Harriet Walter where I come home the day that I've been made to go see, to go to the house of of the of the boy uh and that was a harrowing thing for me to shoot and that and the scene with harriet was a you know heartbreaking scene as written um and and it was i think we shot it like six seven in the morning or something so i woke up really really early in glasgow i wanted to be you know i mean the character is hurting and is really fucked up, and as, as Jesse says in the rock tumbler, 
And so I guess I feel like you owe it to not pretend those things. Um, and that really informed the scene, you know? I mean, I was present and lucid, but I was also in a really dark, dark place. And that felt dangerous and it felt right. But it kind of feels with this show, you know, the, the Senate hearings episode, I'd written a lot of my own stuff and, you know, we sort of riffed a lot and I got into some real heated arguments with Eric Bogosian. You know, most of that didn't make it into the cut. There's an episode where we went hunting in Hungary and I sort of had an improvisation where I was off hunting alone in the woods and I meant to shoot this boar. And, you know, we hadn't really checked in with the character internally much and so I you know I was in the woods and we were I ended up I think sitting down and putting this rifle in my mouth uh and you know it's just that didn't make it into the cut I think because of storytelling wise they weren't you know there yet but I once in a while you'll do a scene or you'll have a moment where like you know the focus puller or one of the grips or I think in this case, it was our second assistant camera operator came up and said something later about how it affected them. So when you when 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 something sort of moves a member of the crew, I, that to me, that's as much a gauge or of, of anything um, ever. So there's lots of moments that are discoveries. And, you know, there's a lot of, you know, Jesse kind of lets me do whatever. You know, I, of course, show up completely prepared and you know we shoot the text as written but i've never once there's never i've never once had an impulse be stifled um and they all jesse and mark mylod really just encourage uh us to be sort of to take ownership and that that allows i think for the result that that is the show um that level of ownership from all of us at the finale of season two, I felt, and I had a lot of exchange with Jesse about this, that my father saying to me, you're not a killer, that wasn't enough for me to, to sort of propel me as a, as a catalyst for what then happens. I felt like he said that to me before. I mean, he essentially said that to me in the pilot. Um, I felt like we had the sort of firing pin and we had a hammer and we didn't yet have a trigger point. And, and, you know, one night Jesse woke up in the middle of the night and thought that he could tie in no real person involved to the boy. And when he wrote that in, that was one of these sort of revelatory moments for me of, of, of just brilliant writing and of the power of the unconscious, you know. Um, but that made it all kind of fall into place, you know, when, when, when I heard my father say no real person involved about Andrew Dodd, I saw him differently than I ever had before. So, you know, that while that wasn't an on the day improvisation, that was an actor and a, and a writer sort of forging together the, the story that we're telling and, and the character's experience. So, you know, I mean, I count my lucky stars every day that Jesse Armstrong is, is, you know, behind this. 
Um, will uh, will you indulge me one last idiotic question, um, just for fun, which is, uh, <laughs> if Kendall or you, no, let's say you, Jeremy's wrong, if you had to be in some sort of quarantine lockdown situation uh, with one member of the Roy family and you can't pick Kendall because that's a cheat, uh, who would you, Jeremy Strong, uh, want to be locked down with? You know, can I pick Cousin Greg? Yeah, that's yeah. a great pick. Yeah. Love it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and I, you know, as I'm sure the writers have been, I've been thinking a lot about what a family like ours on the show would be doing and how they would be experiencing this pandemic. And, you know, because it does fall along class lines. Um, you know, even though the virus itself is indiscriminating. You know, there was that there was an article a few weeks ago about the the crowd of caviar delivery guys outside of Carbone in New York City who were all sort of, I should say guys and, and, and gals, uh, uh, who were all huddled together, you know, not six feet apart, waiting, clamoring at the door to get their orders of $70 veal marsala for, you know, the Manhattanites who were ordering their delivery from, from Carbone, you know, which, which surely we would be doing. So it's, you know, I've, I sort of had this sort of parallel track running in my mind of the, uh, you know, the, the very different and experience that, that, that they would be having, which would leave them relatively untouched, I think, by whatever's happening in the world. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> thank you so much. Yeah, thank you for your time. <laughs> it's really great to talk it. to you. Yeah. And, 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 you know, take care. That does it for this week's show. Uh, you can find us on VanityFair.com, including uh, Johanna's interview with Cheryl Dunier and Padma Lakshmi and her Janelle Monáe cover story, um, which is on a newsstand near you. If anyone is going out in the world and seeing newsstands right now, congratulations. You can find us on Twitter at LittleGoldMen. And on our own, I'm at Katie Rich and Richard. Rylaws. And Johanna. At Johanna Desta. This week's episode was edited and produced by Brett Fuchs, and this week's award for the best activity for the remainder of quarantine goes to Johanna Desta. I will analyze that blank wall. <laughs> <laughs>